Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an exciting founder because he's a founder that, uh, you know, basically got into data science, then, you know, uh, hedge funds, and now he is doing something really interesting and quite a series that he's done. So his journey quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Isidorchik. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So originally you were born in Canada you know, to immigrant parents. So just a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada. So think uh, the Kansas of Canada, central Canada. Both my parents were university professors. I'm a triplet, actually. So kind of grew up in a very academic and healthfully competitive environment um, that was also relatively quiet. So moving to the East Coast was a big change. So then tell us about moving to the East Coast, because obviously the idea of Wharton came knocking. I mean, that, that's a pretty incredible achievement. You know, from in the middle of nowhere in Canada, all of a sudden you land in one of the best universities in the world. I'm sure that your parents, being immigrants, you know, that were always about giving you guys a better tomorrow, were quite proud. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, again, they're both university professors. So I think that in some ways you know, they were very supportive of looking, you know, around the world for the best universities uh, that we could go to, Um, you know, but it's one of those things where, you know, in Canada, universities are free or nearly free. um, And and that's not the case in America. And so, 
my perspective was, look, if I get into one of these fantastic schools, um, then it's probably worth going. But if I get into an average school, it probably makes more sense to stay in Canada. And I was sort of fortunate enough to get into Wharton. I really liked the combination of um, sort of stretching myself to do business. I, I'd been programming since I was like 12. So I sort of knew that computer science coding was an option for me. Um, but I always felt that like mixing, you know, two different skill sets together makes sense if you're not in the top 0.1% of the field, right? So I knew I wasn't going to be, you know, the next best coder on the planet. And so it felt like there's very few people who have something cross-disciplinary. And that's kind of what pushed me to, to go to Wharton rather than going to an engineering school. And that theme, I think, has played out throughout my life in other ways. So then tell us about what was it like to be there in Wharton? Because, I mean, there you have an amazing community full of opportunities. You know, a lot of people go into consulting, into maybe like launching their startup, like, for example, the Warby Parker guys, or like in your case, data science and, you know, basically hedge funds. Yeah. So, you know, it was it was an awesome community. It was uh, like I would warn, it was very pre-professional. Um, definitely somebody coming in from Canada, I had no idea that sort of people come in and they're like ready to work in investment banking or consulting, um, you know, in freshman year. So very kind of intense and pre-professional. I would say that, uh, you know, at the time, data science was still pretty early. Like think back to 2011, 2012, I think tech and specifically data science was less of a magnet for Wharton students just yet. But I was very lucky that the statistics department at Wharton was in the Wharton School. And so you can major in something very technical, statistics, and still do all the normal finance management type courses, and then sort of interview for a mix of roles. And so, you know, that's where I found my home. And I think one of the underappreciated aspects of Wharton was the, the graduate programs. I made a lot of friends with professors, graduate students in Wharton. Um, you know, I had a lot of RA jobs um, and some of the best people I met were actually grad students in PhD programs while I was at Wharton. And I found that sort of very intellectually um, stimulating and challenging and kind of, again, interesting cross-disciplinary mix of the quantitative and sort of the applied. So how do you get into the whole thing around data science? So, yeah, so... I mean, again, I, I kind of knew I wanted to do something technical. I knew I liked to code. But I think the thing that really pushed me over the edge was Moneyball, the movie uh, about Billy Bean and the Oakland A's came out in freshman year. And it was all about this kind of concept of using statistics to turn a low budget baseball team into a high performing team by, you know, buying underappreciated players that would perform better um, than their prices indicated. And I sort of watched that in freshman year. And I still remember going to the movie theater and watching that and being like, wow, that's so cool. That's so interesting. That's what I want to do. And I didn't really care about baseball at all. Um, but just the concept um, seemed to make a lot of sense to me. And it seemed to vibe very closely with sort of statistics and what was sort of becoming data science. So that, that, that's what got me interested in, in, in the field. And what about hedge funds? You know, how do you land in Kochu? How What was that process like? 
Yeah. So, so I was fortunate enough to be introduced to, you know, a senior partner at KOTU. So th there was a little bit of dumb luck involved, candidly, in getting introduced to KOTU specifically. But what I did know is I did know that I wanted to work in, on the buy side. Um, and then there was this question of like, OK, do you go work at a Two Sigma or an AQR or sort of a quant firm? Or do you go work at a discretionary firm like KOTU and try to sort of do technical statistical work at a traditionally discretionary non-technical firm. And, you know, I sort of came to the conclusion that, again, if I go to Two Sigma, there's going to be, you know, 20 other graduates just like me that essentially have the same skill set. And if I go to a place like KOTU, where they're not doing data science yet, you know, I, again, I, I can build a cross-disciplinary skill set and be one of the first. So I just thought strategically it made more sense to go to, to KOTU. Obviously, Kochu had a good brand at the time. And, you know, Philippe LaFont, the founder, was in hedge fund circles, very famous at the time already and very well respected. Um, so, I, you know, it was, it was an obvious choice in that sense. Um, I think that when you go through Wharton, again, I mentioned it's very pre-professional. You know, I think when you go into Wharton, you kind of see all of finance as this kind of blur, right? Like investment banking, sales and trading, by side, like honestly, most freshmen at Wharton don't know the difference, right? And so as you kind of go through the years, you realize, you know, what is a sales job at the, at the highest level and what is a, a betting job or a intellectually kind of like uh, asset allocation job. And it became very clear to me that I found intellectually the asset allocation space far more interesting. So at that point, I knew that the buy side was the place for me. And then, you know, Kotu came along. So then in this case, you know, at Kotu there, you know, like you literally started on this, you know, uh, journey on, on, on pushing the data science. And then all of a sudden it's like 40 people, you know, that you have, uh, you know, in the, in the team. So. so, you know, it obviously wasn't planned, right? You don't hire a 20 year old from college and, you know, intend to make them the head of data science. I think what happened was, you know, I joined as a research analyst um, and, you know, I was working for, you know, investment analysts that covered Internet names. And, you know, we quickly discovered that there was, you know, data driven approaches to, you know, generating investment alpha. And these things, you know, at first they became like clever tricks, right? It became like, hey, you know, if you go to Netflix.com, you could sort of see um, what AWS server was serving that Netflix page. So if you visited that Netflix page 20 times, you could see how many servers they had spun up. And so you could benchmark sort of the relative success of different pieces of original content on Netflix. And so it started off with tricks like that. And then it graduated into, you know, procuring and buying large data sets, which became known as alternative data sets. Think credit card data, clickstream data, point of sale data, anything that could measure what businesses and consumers were doing in real time. And that moved faster than quarterly reports or uh, government reports. And, you know, these things required progressively more and more technical skill and more and more engineering skill. And so it started off with, hey, this is really interesting, you know, hire yourself an engineer to help you process this data or hire another person to help you make more estimates. And sort of before you knew it, you know, there was like five of us working on this problem space. And so, so it organically grew. And even at that point, you know, I was young, I was 23, 24, um, so there was always this question of like, oh, do we need to hire a VP of data science from Google, right, to run the Kochu data science team? And 
I think candidly what we found was although those people certainly had more experience than me in running data science organizations, they had much less experience um, in, you know, basic financial investment concepts, right? Like they would interview and you'd ask like, hey, what did you think of earnings this afternoon? Or like, you know, how would you model, um, you know, McDonald's revenue versus Chipotle's revenue? And why are those different financial concepts? McDonald's, of course, is a franchise business. And, you know, most people in data science don't have that that skill set or that knowledge at all, right? And so it sort of became this alternative data field, and it's called alternative data because it's, you know, alternative to traditional quantitative uh, market data, um, like price data, volume data, so on. Th this field was pretty new. So there was nobody with 30 years of experience in this field. And so at that point, you know, I'd already been running the team effectively for three years. And so, you know, I had as much experience as anybody in that field. And so they just let me keep growing with it and gave me a lot of leash um, to to keep building it, um, which I'm obviously very grateful for. And, you know, goes to show that some of these hedge funds that operate in very lean models are great places for young people uh, to to start their careers, because if you're successful, they sort of give you a lot of rope. Um, and if you're not successful, you know, it's still a fantastic brand. You still get a fantastic training um, and, and, and so on. And so, you know, the, the founder of Co2 always gave this kind of advice to young people. Um, he has a, did an interview and, and I distinctly remember this because I watched it before I joined Co2. And he says, you know, when you're starting your career, you want to do one thing conventional and one thing unconventional. And so the conventional thing might be, you know, go work at Goldman or go work at a traditional good brand where you're going to get good training and then sort of have more doors open to you as a result of that training. And then do sort of one unconventional thing that makes me different. And, you know, at Co2, I got the best of both worlds where got to work on the buy side, you know, Sterling brand that has only gotten better as the firm has has grown and grown successfully. And at the same time, I got to do something different and unconventional in, you know, not just being an investment analyst, but really focusing on this data science angle, which was new. Um, so, you know, I feel like I've lived that and Coach, you gave me the opportunity to do that. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C 
all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. I mean, how did the idea of CyberSame, you know, come knocking? How was that process, you know, from ideation all the way to launch? Yeah, great question. Well, so it was a it was a complicated it was a complicated road. So first of all, I would say that, you know, while I was at Code2, we were buying a lot of external data. And so we were working with traditional data providers um, to acquire data. And the question is always like, where do we get the most valuable insights. And, you know, a lot of these data vendors are frankly legacy businesses. They've had pseudo monopolies for 20 to 30 years. They, you know, they've had less innovation to innovate. Um, They've been delivering the data the same way for the longest time. And at the end of the day, hedge funds are a little bit of a niche space compared to other data buyers. And so therefore, you know, we're not always the most important client, even if individually we're paying millions of dollars for the data. So I was always a little bit frustrated with our data vendors. I always thought they could do better. So I, I think, and, and, and not just do better in terms of the types of data they provide, but also about the way they provide us that data, the technology, the metadata, the reliability, just all these things where I always felt you know, there was a better way to be a data provider that could take advantage of sort of more modern technology and frankly be a pleasure to work with. So that that was my first inkling, but I never, you know, I wasn't intending to leave Code 2 at all. You know, the other thing that happened is we started using Snowflake and Snowflake was really a game changer for us. Um, it, you know, was also, you know, besides being a data processing, data warehousing tool, they launched this concept of a data marketplace. And that data marketplace was super useful in reducing the amount of ETL time we needed, so the amount of ingestion engineering we needed to bring data in from wherever it was coming from, emails, Excel files, SFTPs, S3 buckets. And Snowflake reduced that because suddenly data vendors could be using Snowflake and they could just share that table with you. And so I thought, wow, this is going to, you know, this is so helpful. This changes a lot. If the Snowflake marketplace takes off, like this, is, this really makes my life easier and probably makes a lot of people's lives easier. You know, you could see the data dictionaries. You didn't have to talk to salespeople. There's all these great things. And, and I really got behind that. And so not only were we a customer, but we eventually became an investor. And I spent a lot of time chasing down the Snowflake team. I spoke at their all hands. I got to know Frank and some of the executives like Christian at Snowflake and built a relationship. And so, you know, when I when I eventually decided to take a break, I was turning 30. I'd worked at Co2 so far the entire career. I really felt, you know, there's points in life where you need to evaluate and say, okay, I'm working a lot. Maybe I need to take a break and sort of focus on sort of time for myself, for, for mental health, for, you know, uh, just to decide, like, look, what does the rest of my career look like? At that point, I was already a partner at Co2. I was financially successful. I felt, you know, like I, I needed some time to work on myself personally. And, you know, in that time, Snowflake sort of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you should come work at Snowflake when you're ready to get back in the game. And I was very interested. I thought extremely highly of the Snowflake management team. But at the same time, you know, I wasn't a database developer. I was a user of databases and a user of database contents. Um, and I also didn't want to be a salesperson or 
you know, I, a sort of thought leader alone. I still wanted to build things. And so, you know, one thing led to another and I be, and sort of made the pitch of like, hey, look, why don't we build a content layer, a new data as a service business for the Snowflake marketplace? A sort of, if Snowflake is the Netflix, then Cybersyn can be the sort of original content layer on that Netflix in the data marketplace. And I was fortunate that they really liked the idea. And, you know, one of the challenges with data as a service businesses, um, and, you know, Oren Hoffman at Safegraph talks about this a lot, um, is the CapEx, the upfront cost is just very, very high. Um, and so I needed a capital partner that would be willing to sort of fund us in a non-traditional way. Um, and when I say non-traditional, I just meant I would have to raise a lot of money upfront. Um, and so Snowflake obviously was a partner that was, you know, positioned to do that from a business perspective and had a strategic reason to do that. And so they they offered. And I thought, look, this is a this is a great match. It's strategically aligned. They have the capital resources to execute on something that's going to be very expensive. Um, they could be good partners. And so I went back to Co2 and sort of um, said, look, I'm I'm going to do this thing with Snowflake. Um, but I would love, you know, some independent governance. And at this point, I had, uh, had a relationship with Co2 since I was essentially um, 19 or, or 20, 20, I think, years old. So I felt it would be great to have Co2 involved as well. Um, and so I was fortunate that Thomas LaFont, the Co2's co-founder, offered to be on our board and invest. Um, and then we also included Sequoia, which is a firm I've gotten to know as a competitor when I was at Co2, but also have a huge amount of respect for, and they've been very helpful in a unique and different way as well. Um, so that's what put the round together. And that was in August of 22 and sort of spent the first couple of months, you know, working on data deals and acquiring data. And then this year really started putting the team together and launching data products. Now, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Cybers and how do you guys make money? Yeah, so so the, the the simplest way to think about it is we sell data. As opposed to selling software, we sell data. And you know, what that means is becomes more nuanced. So, you know, we acquire large raw data data sets that come from everything from retailers, banks, API gateways, apps, and these are generally large raw dumps of data. Some of them come from data vendors, some of them come from companies that wouldn't consider themselves data vendors, but have some asset they would like to monetize. We then curate that data, we clean it up, we merge it, we join it, we make it usable for market intelligence purposes. Um, and we make that clean table available on Snowflake Marketplace. And so if you're a data scientist or a data engineer or a business analyst or a market or competitive intelligence analyst, you can then go to Snowflake Marketplace find the data sets you need and buy those data sets and pay for them on an annual or monthly basis, like a subscription, right? So our product is fundamentally rows and columns, effectively, right? We are, we're selling that data. Um, now, it's derived in the sense that we do a bunch of the cleaning, we do a bunch of the data engineering and modeling work to make that data actually solve business use cases. And we happen to focus on what I call the consumer economy. Um, which is, um, you know, where consumers are spending money and time in aggregate. So really trying to understand sort of what the economy is doing. I mean, the way I pitch it to people is if, if we had access to every corporate database in the United States 
on an ongoing real-time basis, we could model US GDP on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Now, clearly, that's an exaggeration. That's not possible. But the question is, how closely can you approximate that, right? Today, the US Census Bureau you know, reports GDP on a quarterly basis and reports inflation and unemployment on a monthly basis. And so if you think about business decision-making or more importantly, policy decision-making, how much better could we govern our businesses and govern our economy if we had more up-to-date, more real-time data? It should be possible. And it certainly was possible to make money that way at Kotu. So why not make this concept available to sort of everybody else? Um, you know, growing up, I loved SimCity. Like SimCity 4 was my favorite game of all time. And I always felt that, you know, what mayors and governors do is they just play SimCity. It's just real life. And, you know, obviously, as I got older, I discovered that that's actually not what mayors and governors do. But the question is, why not? Right. If you were running New York City, why wouldn't you want a real time view of what the economy was doing and how your actions were shaping that economy? It, it would make for a better world. And frankly, it would make for more profitable more efficient and better businesses. And so that's the passion or that's the vision I'm pursuing. So let's talk about that for one minute. Um, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of CyberSyn is fully realized, what does that world look like? It looks like, you know, I, I think that a great, there's a lot of things that change, but I, let, let me just give one specific example. We don't, we're able to manage our economy in a data-driven um, empirical way. And so we don't have debates on the news on is inflation transitory? We don't, you know, wait for monthly published reports and the market jumps on those monthly published reports. Instead, you know, the Fed and the economic regulatory bodies can make decisions and react extremely quickly to what is going on in the economy and sort of demonstrates to constituents that they have a handle on things. So when COVID-19 happens, we have a clear sense of what's going on to the economy. When there's proposals and bills to you know, increase um, economic stimula stimulation, so helicopter money, right? There's really clear facts about where consumer uh, savings balances stand and whether we need more stimulus or not. And we can still have a political debate about it, but the facts are very clear and transparent about what's actually going on, as opposed to everybody disagreeing on, you know, is, is this even true or not? Is there too much stimulus in the economy? Is inflation transitory is not? Is inflation going up or down, right? And having to wait for quarterly or monthly reports to, to sort of make those decisions, right? And so you can imagine a world where the federal funds rate is changed not you know once a month or every time there's some there's a you know FOMC meeting, but it's changed by a machine on a daily or weekly basis to best manage the economy and further smooth out the the credit cycle. I mean that world could exist and it would do a lot to smooth you know consumption and ultimately achieve the goal of stable prices and full full employment. So then obviously here we're talking about the future. I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to bring you back in time, and I was to bring you back to the moment where you were maybe in Wharton and still figuring out what would be next for you. And let's say you had the opportunity of whispering 
to that younger Alex, and you were able to give that younger Alex one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? So I think the the number one thing that I've benefited from is, you know, sticking with. So as I said before, I would echo Philippe's advice on do something conventional and unconventional at the same time. So go work at a good brand where you'll get good training. And then, you know, I think the other thing is once you're in a position where you have some rope or some you have people above you that support you or want to mentor you or believe in you or give you some opportunity, you have to stick with it for a long time. I mean, I was at KOTU for, you know, six and a half years. And if you count the internship, it, it, it's like more like eight years. And I think that it would have been very difficult to have the experiences and the opportunities that I have now the relationship with Snowflake, for example, if I had like stayed at Kotu for two years, then go worked at some other hedge fund for another two years, then go like if I jumped around, I feel like although I might know the same amount of things, I wouldn't have taken a process kind of end to end. And so the biggest piece of advice is when things, you know, get difficult, um, you know, and, and there were times at Kotu where things got difficult, for sure. There was ups and downs. Managing money is, is very difficult. Um, I would say you have to stick through it. Um, and, you know, I like to say nobody really accomplishes anything at a job until they've been there for at least three or four years. I mean, anything less than three years, there's no way that somebody would have actually, you know, other than maybe sales, I think there's no way to actually have built something meaningful. Right. And so, you know, in, in, in that sense, I think people maybe underestimate the value of grinding through um, what might be difficult in the short term in order to actually build something. So when you leave that place, you know, you know that there's sort of a continuation and you had sort of a lasting impact. And obviously, you know, it's easy for me to say because I was very fortunate to land at KOTU where, you know, the people I worked for ended up being huge champions of my effort. And obviously, I like to think that my performance had something to do with that. But it's important to recognize that, you know, you need to be a good surfer. But when you find a good wave, you have to sort of stay on that wave. So, Alex, for the people that are listening, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. So find me on Twitter. Um, I'm Alex Izzy on Twitter. Um, so feel free to reach out. My DMs are open or feel free to email me at AI at cybersyn.com. My uh, initials are pretty fortunate in today's AI world. Amazing. Well, hey, Alex, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.